May 13th. It's Jason versus Tina. Don't go in there! The match made in hell. There goes the neighborhood. Friday the 13th, part 7, The New Blood, rated R. Starts Friday, May 13th, at a theater near you. All right, everyone, uh, thank you for tuning in once again. This is The Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that covers every franchise, one movie in one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host... Jerry Smith, that is me. How's it going, guys? It's going great. And Jerry, do you want to do the honors of introducing our guest tonight? Oh, most definitely. I am very excited about this episode. Uh, first off, we have Peter Brackey, who wrote the Bible on Friday the 13th, Crystal Lake Memories. I mean, if you're a, a fan of the franchise, you own this book. And if you don't own this book, you're not a fan of the franchise. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, Peter, how's it going, man? Very good. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. So, no, no, it's 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 great. My kids are even obsessed with the book. And uh, <laughs> we also have uh, Tommy Hudson, who wrote Never Sleep Again, a wonderful book about the making of A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, produced many documentaries, wrote one of my favorite horror films of the last few years, uh, Animal, which you guys should check out, uh, and directed quite a few films himself. Uh, what's up, man? Wow, thank you. I think I'm going to say that my introduction was a little better than Peter Bradley's. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so we need I'm to go super back. glad to be here. I'm going to just jump right out of the gate and say I love Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. So what is it about, we always like to know, like, what is it about this particular entry that stands out that really makes you love it? I mean, I think for me... It's a blend of kind of, you know, of course it's nostalgia. I vividly remember sneaking in with two of my friends to see it. It came out right around my birthday and it was just kind of like such a fun memory, but it's also such a ridiculously fun Friday the 13th movie. (laughs) Whereas like part six is like overtly fun and supposed to be funny. A lot of the times I just look back at the new blood and find it hilarious in so many ways that it's not supposed to be, but yet it works. And I love, love, love the look of Jason. It's my favorite, Mm -hmm. my favorite, like, you know, look of Jason. I love the backbone and the side face. And I I just have such a great time watching this movie. If you were to put all of these films in front of me, I could list off like the really great ones, the really well-made ones, but I would probably want to watch the new blood. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm call me crazy. Call me crazy. No, what's, what's, interesting, what's interesting <laughs> about that is, uh, you know, for the longest time, it was hard for me to find fellow fans of the film. Like, you know, everyone always talks about two or six or, you know, four like that. But it's only recently that I've discovered so many people love this movie. I went to, uh, I hosted a Q&A for the film Starfish. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Really wonderful movie. And had to go to the director's house before. And, you know, uh, meet him. And as soon as I stepped through the door, on a huge projector, he was projecting new blood. And, like, like the film Starfish, it's it's like a dramatic, it's, it's a drama-heavy film about, like, trauma and losing a friend and all this stuff. So I expected, you know, go in there and talk about, you know, these, these very deep movies. And, you know, new blood was playing. Uh, it, it is a fun movie, and it, it's a blast. It is. I remember when we did the documentary, when we did Crystal Lake Memories, particularly, 
um, we had a big green room and people would wait, you know, for their interview and we got to chit chat with everyone. And, you know, we had the entire, you know, set of movies and we would play them on a loop and it would just be like, everyone would always be coming in. Oh my God, the new blood again. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't help it. I'm trapped up here and, you know, in production hell and I just need to have some fun. And they're like, okay, Tommy, whatever. <laughs> yeah. What about, what about you, Peter? Uh, what kind of made you, uh, get into the new blood? Well, you know, I, I'm a little older than Tommy. I won't say how much older, but um, <laughs> not, not too much. But so I grew, I mean, the ones that really impacted me were the first four. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the more uh, realistic, Jason was, well, relatively a real person, um, a little darker, more backwoodsy kind of thing. And then like six, seven and eight, five, six, seven and eight, I was still, of course, a huge fan. But definitely that to me was sort of the era when, um, it became like each movie was kind of almost like a gimmick, like, you know, five was imposter Jason and six was the funny one. Seven was a telekinetic girl. So I enjoyed them, but I don't think at that point, so as a little older, I found them, I don't think I found them that scary anymore. So, um, uh, I remember seeing it as a teenager. I also remember seven, not so much disappointed in the filmmakers, but just because the NBA is so cut the movie, my experience seeing it was people were like, cheering and then like oh they cut that or oh you know it was sort of a, a sense of deflation a bit um but mm-hmm. i still really enjoy the movie it's a lot of, i think the tel- uh, tina you know really adds a new element it really uh, makes the final chase really exciting and fresh and you know, it is a lot of fun so um but, you know talking to fans it doesn't surprise me because obviously i think me and tommy are both a little um i don't know what the word is um um uh, just because we've interacted with fans so much that, you know, I've met fans over the years. Everyone has a favorite. Some people love Part 8. Some people love Jason X. So it doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me that there's like a, a strong cult for Part 7. But I think a lot of kids <laughs> saw it. This is the first Friday that they saw. I, you know, it, I think also the gimmick of the telekinesis is just really kind of fo- cool <laughs> and fun. And and the idea of, the you know, it's like you, you used to wait for Jason to be unmasked. Like that was yes. the big kind of thing. This mm-hmm. was like... Now I'm waiting for her and yes. him to show off. I think a little mm-hmm. more than anyone else, because in the prior movies, it was a little less of the final girl proactively deciding, let's do this. And yes. in, in this case, Tina was like, we're going to do this and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to you. And and you just kind of were like, this is great. And I wanted more like it. And it escalated. It's like first with the shocking and then the roof yep. and then. And then, of course, the couch. But yeah, you know, and you you're definitely them all. waiting throughout the movie for for Jason to get his ass kicked because you knew that yes. he was walking for a while. So you're like, yes, yes. And you know, the one way to definitely stop Jason is to throw some nails into <laughs> yeah, sure him <laughs> with your mind. <laughs> like, come on, honey. There are a well, lot of things you could be doing here. I, well, I, think, my, of... I think my favorite is when she mm-hmm. throws. Does she throw the tree at his head? Yes, she moves the potted yes. plant and yes. he gets headbutted yes. by um <laughs> by Dave. Is it David? Yeah, no, 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 it's not David, it's Eddie. He gets uh, headbutted yeah, so by Eddie's yeah. head. Yes. Just, well, there are so many moments. What's yeah. interesting is a lot of the flack that Seven gets uh is, you know, for the telekinesis and that kind of stuff. But by the seventh film, I mean we've kind of seen that formula time and time again, and it works. I mean uh, the final chapter is my second favorite film of all time. But, I mean, wow. that formula, I understand why they kind of went that direction with seven, eight. And, you know, though I'm not a fan of, you know, Jason getting to the ocean, you know, from a lake. 
you know, I, I, under, Jason I understand takes Vancouver, right? <laughs> I understand. Totally I understand the need to do something different, and I think that that's one of uh, the many charms of uh, the New Blood. Well, the I original, I, the original idea behind this as well was this was going to be the Freddy versus Jason movie, mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately, by this time, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street series is so far above and beyond. Friday the 13th in terms of what it's making at the box office at Bob Shea is like, we're not doing any sort of 50, 50 split here. Like our guy is hot right now. And you guys are yeah. on the decline. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, I think had you done, had they done, you know, the new blood with its telekinetic gimmick and Jason takes Manhattan with its New York gimmick. had those come earlier in the franchise. Like you were saying where it, it wasn't kind of the same old, same old, I think they would have done a little better, but there was just, a tiring out in terms yeah. of these movies. I think if you were a fan, you probably, if you were a casual fan, you were probably sick of Jason by the time part seven yes. came along. If you were like me, I was like, I'm a little kid. I'm a diehard fan. I'm going to go see it no matter what. Mm-hmm. But you know, telekinetic Tina versus Jason clearly only catered to, I think a lot of the diehard fans because it just came too late. I think. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And at a certain point, I mean, if, if part seven was just kids in the woods again, there was no telekinesis, there would be nothing to differentiate it. I don't think it even would have opened as strongly as it did. I mean, it did, at least I got people talking like, oh, OK, Carrie versus Jason. Even if you laugh at the idea, it gave it a spin that made it somewhat unique. And uh, otherwise, I, you know, and like same with Jason going to Manhattan. If you didn't do something, I just don't think you can have him in the woods again without anything unusual about it. You have to get and it. I- yeah, and I think those movies opened both The New Blood and Jason Takes Manhattan because they had great ad campaigns that made it, especially again for that hardcore fan base, like, oh my God, look at that moment. And oh my God, it's Jason looking at the Statue of Liberty. And, you know, totally. Those were the, it was, it was gimmicks at that point because what else was there to do? I mean, and even if New, even in New Blood, they had enough stalking yeah. through the woods to fill a regular Friday the 13th movie. Yeah, because I remember, you know, seeing the first one and two. As a kid, I was 10 when part one came out. Just the idea of a crazy maniac in the woods killing people off creatively was exciting in and of itself. By the time six, seven, eight came out, we had seen that formula so many times that the premise wasn't exciting anymore. You had to juice it up somehow. Yeah. Well, that And there's a lot in New Blood, uh, even just on top of the telekinesis. I mean, it's also the first Friday the 13th to have, you know, a full on human antagonist as well with Terry Kaiser's, you know, doctor role. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, yeah. I think there's a lot of approaches kind of, you know, a, a lot of people just go to the Tina angle, but I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of other things to kind of get on board with as well. Well, yeah, to give the later movies credit, especially, you know, even part five, they start really started with that. Even part four, you started to have more of, you had the final girl, but I also had, usually had a guy character, maybe a kid. You try, like with Tommy in part five, they, you know, at least legitimately tried to have a real story with a real character you cared about. Tina, you know, you're supposed to empathize with her. She has a backstory. They went beyond just faceless teens, you know, parting in the woods. And you had that element. But at least they tried to do something with the real character, you know. Yeah, and the <laughs> thing is, I think with Terry Kaiser, I mean, you know, he's so arch. I mean, he's it's, it's just like, he's just a... a really bad guy from the beginning there's he's like yeah. an 11 throughout the whole thing and yeah. you know all of his scenes have this they start out like i'm trying to help you and then like he goes to an 11 and starts screaming at her to get matches to explode and um yeah. it, it's like it's just so interesting to me 
that's so funny. <laughs> that's the scene that's on TV right now for me. <laughs> because I'm not. using my psychic abilities. You are. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but I mean, that's the thing. Like the Terry Kaiser role was like really juicy. I mean, yeah, it's a Friday the 13th movie, but I'm sure a working actor or not, what a fun role to play. I mean, you're in a Jason movie with a telekinetic girl and you get to play the human villain. I mean, that really was the first, like you're saying, well, in that franchise. I, I think a lot of times when, uh, you know, uh, my friend Heather Buckley refers to uh, just casual fans as civilians. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think when, you know, quote unquote civilians look at films like Friday the 13th movies, they, they kind of seem to think that there's throwaway characters. But I mean, going back to like final chapter, I've always said, and many times on this podcast already, that if you take Jason out, it's a great coming of age film. And I feel like the Friday 13th films, they did have fun, likable characters. And yeah, some of them, they got a little bit faceless, you know, kind of a lack of personality. But I think Seven is another one where they did have really rich characters. I mean, there's a, there's a couple that I'm not super crazy about. I mean, the the character of Eddie, even as a kid walking into that, I was just like, what? Is that what people think about me? You know, because I was a kid writing these these sci-fi stories, too. I'm going to go on record and say that I'm kind of in love with Star Mummy. (laughs) (laughs) I love how he just pitches his stories. To to his friends. Yeah, to his friends. Who are going to do nothing for him, although Melissa might have some money. Well, I love when he was smart. He could get her to finance something. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I love I love when he's rejected by Melissa, and he's like, "Well, I've been rejected by some of the best science <laughs> exactly. fiction magazines in the world, so I'm not I mean, sweating it." It's like, I is that just, supposed yeah. to be a burn right there? Like, I just assumed. I, I mean, I was very young. I, mean, I snuck in. I was very young. I just assumed that's the natural comeback from a heterosexual teenage male to the object of his affection. I mean. I was like, I'm going to use that line. This is going to get me through high school. And I've then, used it oh. as a, I've used it as a pickup line as opposed to a rejection line. It hasn't, <laughs> hasn't, hasn't worked. worked. Not well, worked. I think because what you forgot to add was Starlacon. True. Yeah, that that would have closed the deal. <laughs> True. So Jerry, well, like, uh, go ahead. Sure, you mentioned part four, and this thing about this movie is it feels a lot like a kind of parallel to part four in a lot of ways. Like you have the partying teens and the family next to them. You have just like the, you know, to me, like Nick and Rob are kind of analogous to one another. Um, It feels a lot like a remake of part four just with telekinesis. You guys know the backstory, right? I mean, um, well, it's Mancuso kind of putting that mandate, right? Because yes, he didn't yeah. like the the proposed condo thing, right? Is yeah, that correct? He, he basically yeah. said, "Take final chapter and redo it," because that he thought that was the best one. So, mm-hmm. was- now what's what's interesting about that is the original kind of idea that Barbara Sachs had. Uh, if it had gone that direction, you know, these condos being built at Crystal Lake, they're warned, "Don't do that; it'll bring Jason back," kind of thing. I wonder the where way, the series um, would have went if they had. Yep. By the way, I have that script. If anyone wants to read it, I'm happy to send it to you. That'd be I great. Do. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> so what are some of the key differences? Like what are some of the things oh, that. Oh, the whole thing is, I mean, there's a whole climax of helicopters. There's a whole housing development. There's like an evil real estate guy. There's like I motorcycles mean, involved. I don't remember too much about. Well, and the lake isn't the lake drained. Though I remember reading it, what the lake is drained or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They're, they're trying to make it into a housing development. It's almost like Jaws meets Jason because, like, the evil real estate developer, you know, wants to build on Crystal Lake, and 
It's, it's yeah, it's uh, it's been a long. It's called Jason's Destroyer, is what it's called. So. Oh wow! See, yeah, I've always I've always been interested in the kind of uh, the the stuff that bought Barbara Saxon to the the picture because I mean, from everything I've read, she kind of had this big disdain for the series. I yeah. mean, coming into that, I mean. It, uh, yeah, in in your book, I mean, there's that quote saying that she kind of wanted the Friday Thirteenth movie to win an Oscar. Yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I still laugh about that. Like my son's yeah. ten years old and he was reading the book and he's just like, "Wait, what, Dad? What?" But yeah, well, well, the fact so uh, Frank Vancuso started a company called Hometown Films, mm-hmm. an executive called Michael Sheehy, and they were doing other movies. So Barbara was like the young, you know, a development person, producer. So they're not going to give someone new their prestige project. So she got basically Friday 13th. So it was her job to shepherd it. So, yeah. you know, here's someone young trying to make their way in the business, probably doesn't want to be working on Friday 13th. She, I'm sure she'd much rather have been doing, you know, divine secrets of the Yaya sisterhood or something. Um, so she's trying to make it into something that, you know, she would want to do. Um, I mean, that's my take on it. She, she turned down an interview. Shockingly, I did reach her, but she did not want to talk. So, um, what can you do? Uh, I got a hold of her for the documentary and I actually uh, spoke with her. Oh, yeah. Um, she, but yeah, I mean, she didn't want to go on camera and she basically just kind of kept reiterating, I have nothing to say about Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, but you do, Barbara. Yeah, yes. You do. <laughs> well, the, the joke on part eight was like, if there's like, if the manhole cover is, is accidentally off, let her walk into it. Well, it feels like by this point, Paramount is pretty much they're doing whatever they can to like wash their hands of the series um, just because they're still making money, but not as much. And Paramount's kind of looking for an exit strategy at this point. Yeah, they didn't really care. I mean, it was purely a a product. And Mm -hmm. once it started making less and less money, it was kind of like it's purely business transaction. Um, I mean, Frank Mancuso Sr. is like, you know, I had nothing against it. He's like, I didn't care about it. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like doing Reds or Chinatown. You know, it's not a movie that he's going to put. He's not going to put Fighting Part 7 on his, you know, top 10 movies he's ever made list. But he wasn't ashamed of them. It's like it was just, you know, a product. It was another super. I mean, and they made money. I mean, these were widgets for the studio that they acquired and they made so much money. And I think at some point it's like, listen, they're making so much money. Let's just keep doing it, and we don't yeah. care. But then when they start to make a lot less money, and they look that bad, and then you yeah. have people protesting, yeah. you know, they make the studio look bad, and you have people protesting, they're like, is it worth it? You know, yeah. I think a lot of the people counting the numbers were like, it might not be that worth it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, know, part of it, I'm oh, sorry, you know, Frank Mancuso Jr. said it was like, you know, he really felt these are movies that young filmmakers should do just starting out. You want to give someone their shot. So a lot of times the... Chintzy mitts of, of it or the lack of polish is because these are first time young filmmakers. So these movies are kind of meant to be, um, they're not going to, you're not, you're not going to get a Werner Herzog or Steven Spielberg to direct by their team. It's just not going to You know, what, what's interesting about that when it comes to who directed Seven, I think having Beekler direct it and having such a effects heavy background made the film, I mean, so great. I mean, you know, it's Kane's first outing as Jason. I mean, like like you said, Tommy, the design is just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I think having someone with that much, that big of a background in special effects made the film even better than, you know, it would have been without. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think he kind of brought that, he kind of brought the meat 
to the Friday the 13th movies that a lot of people go see them for. Of course, most of it got cut out by the MPAA, but he, he cared about the character. And I think he made the character look, you know, interesting. He was like, if the character had this, 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 and this, and this happen, let's parlay that into what the look would be. And I think, you know, it just ended up being a really memorable take visually. And I think Kane also, not that any of the other people didn't do their job really well, but Kane really brought something to that character that made you sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, feel for Jason in a way mm -hmm. you kind of identified with him a little more. There was a little more emotion going on. And I know a lot of people have said that in the past. Kane has said that. But I mean, I think when you watch it, he became less the great white shark that's just a killing machine. And there was maybe a little something, however warped, going on in the character's mind. Mm -hmm. Well, Kane definitely cared about the character. He took it seriously. Not that the other guys didn't, but, you know, some of the other Jason actors, like Ted White, God bless him. But, you know, he's honest. He's like, you know, was this a job? I didn't like the material. I thought I was gross. But Kane is a totally different mindset. You know, he really, really passionate about it. Yeah. That ends, I mean, when it comes to that time when Kane took over, that, I mean, New Line was doing such a great job putting Freddy everywhere. I mean, you know, Halloween costumes, a pull string doll that was like my obsession when I was that age. I mean, you know, Freddie was everywhere. And I think it's Kane's Jason that that kind of the casual fans, they think about when they think of Jason. You know, it was Kane's Jason that was on Arsenio Hall. It was Kane's yes. Jason, you know, that, that kind of became that poster for the character. He sort of did for Freddie what Robert England did. For, I mean, I sorry, he did for Jason what Robert England did for yeah, Freddie. He right. made it a character. He gave that character without words a personality, a walk, a look. You know, yeah. I think that there was something there. And I think that's why people responded in the zeitgeist to the Kane Hodder Jason, <laughs> maybe more than they did the other ones. Yeah. yeah, he definitely brings that like pissed off dad energy to the role <laughs> and things like the shoulder <laughs> shrug. Uh, there's that moment when he kind of like, runs his jaw back and forth once his yeah. mask is off. Um, and this is the first, you know, this is a, no longer a Jason that feels any need to move with any set, you know, <laughs> any sort of um, quickness at all. He's just like, basically, I'm going to get you. Um, mm -hmm. You can run as fast as you can. You can hop on a scooter. You can get in your car. But no matter what, like, it's almost like the monster from It Follows in a way. Like, this is a Jason that is like, once he's keyed on you, like, he's going to keep coming after you until the job is finished. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I also think that it's it's really great. You know, a lot of the past sequels, I mean, they they had some a little bit of continuity. But what I love about Kane's Jason, especially in Seven, is every single wound from the previous films is in that design of Jason. And it, it's awesome to see. Yeah. Definitely. I think, and that is, again, one of the things that, you know, Beekler brought was that kind of thought and care and expertise in the actual, you know, physical manifestation of effects. I think that is something that maybe another director wouldn't have really cared that much yeah. about. Hmm. Um, but in terms of an effects mind, he was thinking this happened and this happened and this happened. We need to use that. We need to make that look like it happened. I mean, mm -hmm. you can compare Jason from seven with Jason from eight and, you know, no offense to the movie, but, uh, I mean, you can see the care and the, focus that Beaker brought to the makeup and you don't see that in part eight. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the makeup in, in eight, he sort of looks like a jack-o'-lantern. I mean, am I wrong? Yeah. Nope, I mean, not at all. 
<laughs> but I mean, but in part seven, he looked kind of like you. You say he looked like Jason, which has no real meaning. But you know what? When you really look at that version of the character, he looked like Jason. You could see the things he had been through before. Yeah, hmm. and it, it kind of culminated in, oh my God, that's Jason, and I'm I'm half of his mask is off, and it was very titillating. Because again, a lot of the excitement was, what does he look like under the mask? And you see the back and you see the, the spine and you see the side of his mouth and mm-hmm. you're being kind of teased really throughout the entire film until that big reveal. And then the way they did the reveal with Tina using her powers, there's a really? lot, I think, again, that there's just so much to love about the new blood, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I find really interesting about this movie and the Friday series in particular is the way that it treats parents. Um, in the Nightmare on Elm Street series, the parents are largely absent, and because of that, their kids are killed off one by one, like they're just not around. Um, in the Friday the 13th movies, in part four, part six, and in this one, part seven, you have these really involved parents. You have uh, Mrs. Jarvis, who's a very caring and loving Mom, you have Sheriff Garris, who, for his faults, is doing what he can to protect his daughter and is a decent guy. And here you have, like, Tina's mom, Mrs. Shepard, who's this really sympathetic character, and she's killed off as well. It's almost like these movies are telling telling you that if you're a parent and you're going to get involved in your kids' lives in any way, that things are going to end up... Yeah, Yeah, basically, (laughs) things are going to end up really bad for you. I mean, you could also argue in part five that uh, Melanie Kinnaman and the the other head of the... uh, thing becomes surrogate parents for Tommy. Sure. Yeah, they're parental in nature, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And out of every character in five, those are the two characters that genuinely care about the the well-being of everyone. I, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of five. I appreciate it. But those two characters, I mean, I I think they're wonderfully written and and performed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, yeah, go on. But what is it about, you know, parental figures in these, in these movies that just, gets them off so casually and a lot of times like in a really mean-spirited way like basically um mrs mrs shepherd is used as a human she's used as a human shield basically yeah. <laughs> yeah. and she sure was um i think you know the interesting thing is even though these movies are clearly not written by by youth i think that there is the underlying you know kind of you know, rebellion against the parents. And it's almost like the unconscious thing of like, God, I wish you were dead, mom. And then, yeah. you know, but let I me mean, look at part seven. I mean, I wish the beginning, she, yeah. she says, I wish you were dead. And then she kills her dad. Yeah. Um, so I feel like with the parents, there is sort of this like undercurrent of we're going to off the parents because, you know, parents are terrible and who needs parents, kids, right? Am I right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that that was an overt thing. But I think parents were sort of seen as in the way of these kids having fun. Parents were the downer at the party. And, you know, I wonder what's going on next door. Be careful. It's like, oh, mom, you know, go get killed off screen in a terrible way. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at like Halloween, which obviously Friday the 13th was, uh, uh, you know, the filmmakers admitted they ripped it off. Um, you know, it's all about kids going to a secluded place and doing fun kid things and having sex. And I mean, it wouldn't be any fun to have parents around at a summer camp. It's just so the whole concept kind of requires that there's not going to be a lot of parental figures. I mean, also, you know, I don't want to see a bunch of parents running around getting killed. You want to see teenagers getting killed partly as well. Um, if that makes well, any sense. What I've always found interesting about uh, the new, uh, new Blood is that 
Miss Shepard. I mean, she does care about Tina's well-being, and she's mm-hmm. she's only doing this to try to get her daughter help. But with that being said, as a parent myself, if if some doctor was like yelling at my <laughs> daughter, treating her like shit, like I would lay that guy out. Yeah, like, yeah I mean, listen, she yeah, she definitely cared about her daughter, but she was a little <laughs> she was a little mm-hmm. soft when it came to the doctor who is essentially driving her daughter insane. Yeah. Well, it's interesting uh, yeah. too, because when they talk about Mr. Shepard, who again, dies off super early in the movie, like he's an alcoholic wife beater and yeah. they're like reflecting back on him with all these wa- warm, like, Oh man, we really missed dad. You know, I really missed that time. Like you like got drunk on Jack Daniels and blackened my eyes. Like, no, like this guy sucks. You know? Yeah, no, that is actually true. They, there is too much warm nostalgia for the dad. Like, yeah, I really miss him, mom. And the mom's like grabbing her cheek because yeah. she remembers what it felt like to be slapped. Well, even at the end, he pops out of the water in this big heroic moment and pulls yeah. Jason in and everything's like, yay. But it's just like, what Wait. led to him getting killed at the beginning? He wasn't a good person. He wasn't well, a good person. Well, and if you really look, I think he's drunk at the end, guys. Yeah. I really do. <laughs> I just, just drinking underwater. I, I suppose if you really want to analyze it, you could say that you know Mrs. Shepard, the way she dies is basically her comeuppance for being such a bad mother. I mean, she's picking a really bad man. And at the end, the guy she picks to protect her daughter uses her as a human shield. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, I'm kind of asking for it. Right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. dark, man. That's fucking Sorry. dark. Yeah, that's wow. Dark. wow. P- Everyone, leave it to Ooh. Peter Brackey to bring things <laughs> way down. Well, Peter, I mean, you know, like, Peter yeah. Brackey, anti-mom. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. Well, these are morality tales, right? Don't drink, smoke, use mm-hmm. drugs. Don't be a bad parent or Jason's going to get you. <laughs> Just stop, Peter. Just stop. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm trying. So, Jerry, first, buddy. Oh, no, it wasn't anything that important. Now, I was going to say, you know, uh, Tommy, you mentioned uh, liking the character of Eddie. Uh, What do you guys think about the characters, you know, the the teen characters in the New Blood? I like some of them. Like, you know, you always have some you like more than others. Um, My biggest problem, I don't know how you feel, Tommy, is... With the later Friday teens, they had so many characters. Like, I would have liked it maybe if, you know, they eliminated maybe two or three of them and had a smaller core group that you got to know longer. Like, you watch the first Halloween or Nightmare on Elm Street. There's really only three or four teen characters in those movies. Mm-hmm. But now, at this point, there's like 20 kids. And, you know, so definitely, like, Melissa stands out and um, and stuff. But, like, the, who's the one guy who gets the axe in his face? I can't remember the character name. But that's a character that, like, is like a nothing character. Russell. Yeah, Russell. Russell like, and his big wallet. That's right. That's right. right. No, I agree. I think the thing is, I I think it's like the, the, you know, the dual edged sword because, Mm -hmm. you know, you would, you think you want character development and I want to care about these people. And that's what the reviews always hit. You know, the characters are cardboard Mm -hmm. cutout stereotype, but you need more people because, you know, people are going to watch seven deaths that are very creative and ridiculous. But I, I agree. I mean, the thing is with Friday the 13th, I remember Eddie because he was ridiculous. <laughs> I remember Melissa because, I mean, let's be honest, oh. she was kind of fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I still think that, you know, um, Nick probably would have ended up with her instead of the crazy chick because I, I don't know what else to say about Tina, but she had bad hair and she was nuts. I mean, yep. you know, it's like I think Melissa was really the better choice there. She was, she was well put together. She dressed great. She probably smelled beautiful. And she had money. I mean, you know, well, Nick, could you imagine being, 
Could you imagine being in a relationship with Tina? You piss her off, and you're going to, like, fly into the... the room. No, she's going to drown you. If you piss she's her off, she's going to drown you. She's gonna like, I already worry about that with my wife. I worry about that with my wife, and she doesn't even have telekinesis. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, you can't mess with Tina. You get a television to the face. You get drowned in a lake. It's just not worth it. I mean, yeah, yeah. but, like, you know, Eddie's funny and ridiculous, like, to the point of, like, what is this character even saying? So it's memorable, for better or worse. Melissa's memorable, I think. Um, like Heidi Kozak's character, I remember the actress's okay. name. I don't even remember Sandra. You know, speaking yeah, of like yeah. Sandra, they're they're just there to die. Yeah, I mean, right. you know. And then, um, uh, you know, the the Craig, couple Craig that Thomas. has the relationship problems. Yeah, yeah, Craig. But then let's let's talk about the real star. Oh yes, the real yes. star of the movie, Maddie. Touch up, touch up my ass. Let's, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about how we really get the guy. Yeah, that's and right. that's lose your earring in the forest, ladies. Well, that's what I can never figure out is why does she <laughs> after she does her makeover, why does she immediately walk outside into the woods? Where in heels? Yeah, I, I couldn't quite get the layout of this house. Yes. Like, what's going yeah, on at this? I don't know. But she also not only she realizes her earring is gone, and I love the shot where she's quote unquote looking for it. She's yeah. just kind of pushing down on leaves. Like yeah. in one spot, <laughs> like I don't really know what she's doing. Is she, I, I, but you know, Maddie tried her best, and we yeah. remember her for trying. Yes, too. And, and the well, thing is, what I want to tell her is, it's not about your makeup. It's not about how big your hair is. It kind of he is. did. It sort of is, but he really <laughs> didn't care how much. He really didn't care what kind of clothes you wore because he didn't want you to wear yeah, any. Yeah. Right. That's why your friend got him. Well, Robin well, I, and Maddie are the Jim and Ted of, of this one. Yeah. They're like, you know, except they hate each other. We're like, Jim and Ted have this kind of warm relationship, even when they're going back and forth with one another. Like, Robin and Maddie, like, you don't really see them as friends. Like, Robin is straight up mean to Maddie. Yes, he's nasty. Yeah. Well, you know, but you know, but that's a common thing. I watched my sisters growing up, and they would do the same thing where, this is going to sound terrible, kind of, but there would be like the hotter girl and she'd always have like a girl with her who wasn't quite as pretty. So she got all the guys. Like, that's why you hang out with someone who isn't like, when she says, you know, you know, you need a little work. It's like, she knows she's hanging out with the person that isn't going to threaten her to get guys. Mm -hmm. I might be reading your it. No, no. I think, I think, I think especially, you know, when there's that heightened sense of, you know, Maddie probably had self-esteem issues. Yeah. so she probably was like, I need to do whatever I need to do. And my, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, best friend does nothing but put me down. But she likes me. So I'll mm-hmm. still get to go to the mall. Yeah, I, exactly. I don't know. I, mean, cool I don't parties. think any of this was ever in a development no. discussion. I think we are really diving <laughs> well, deep here. It kind of, yeah, I mean, uh, I think there's some awareness of it. Like, you know, people realize, okay, these movies have to appeal to teenagers. And these are common, you know, teenage problems. Um, there's, there's a little bit of realness to it. Although, like you were saying earlier, Tommy, um, I don't know if all these people would all be friends together. Like, it's a, like, would all these people really hang out in real life? Like, how do they all end up in this cabin? Like, it's hard to imagine they'd all. I agree. I I don't think that this disparate group of individuals, like, listen, Melissa is not going to even set foot in a, in a camping trip or a a, a weekend (laughs) with half these people. She's going to be on the yacht. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. uh, Yeah. It makes you wonder like how likable was the character of Michael that all these people would get together to celebrate him. And what's even funnier is, you know, they still party it up after they have no idea where he is for a while. Yeah. Yeah, True. 
No one's like, saying, oh, so I, I feel, yeah, right I, I feel like, you know, they brought together every possible type of, of human teenage, well, quote unquote teenager, you know, and <laughs> said, let's just throw them together because this is going to be the cross section of our audience. Yeah. But, you know, you look at, I mean, look at every other teen movie since the dawn of teen movies, it's kind of like the haves and the have nots all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the reality of the new blood, you would have Melissa and probably Russell and probably his girlfriend and maybe one or two other people. And the rest of those people would be trying to sneak into the party. Yeah. Because sure. that was where the cool rich kids were hanging out. But instead you have Michael and his girlfriend who looks like a lumberjack. I still don't really get it. <laughs> you know, wandering through the woods and, you know, revealing surprises. Yeah. It's all, it's just all amazing, you guys. Yeah. I just have to say that. <laughs> You also have to wonder why they would they would have a party at Camp Crystal Lake where all these people died, but that's another question. But it also doesn't even feel like like Crystal Lake has changed in size yeah. so many times. Like well, I, I, I never mean, felt like this was on the banks of Crystal Lake. Well, it was filmed like, in Alabama, so there yeah, you go. it was more like you know Crystal Pond. <laughs> that's another thing. I think I think each film that was kind of. Uh, the went away from the where the first couple were filmed. You could kind of notice that difference mm -hmm. in you know geography. Absolutely, like part three, you can. That wasn't the big change really happened to the West Coast. As a kid, mm -hmm. I didn't notice it, but as an adult, it's so obvious. You know, it doesn't look like they're in a. I mean, they're not in any wood. It doesn't. It, yeah, looking back as an adult, I'm like, where are they? Yeah, <laughs> like this is not. Friday the 13th at all. Right. It's it's yeah. definitely, it's hard to make sense of the geography and also the timeline of the movie because the first one takes place in 1979. Um, yeah. And then by, it, it skips ahead five years by part two that the next three take mm -hmm. place over a couple years. Tommy is in his 20s by part six. And how long has Jason been dead and in the bottom of that lake yeah, at this point? Yeah. Like you would think it would be like, have to be like the year 2000 by that time. It, would, so. it really would. Yeah. Would. Yeah. yeah I, don't what, I know someone has done that. I know someone has done the timeline and I think like part seven was like 2000 or 2001 yeah, yeah, exactly. or something. Yeah. And, and I don't think pastels are going to stay in fashion for quite that long. <laughs> no, I don't know. Don't They're coming back. The gap so that, don't tell the gap. They're still pushing pink, you know, collared shirts. Mm. The Gap, I mean, uh, uh, Tommy, I think you still wear pastels, don't you? I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> no, as long as it's plaid. As long as it's plaid. We did a, a, a small, like, side interview with, with William Butler about the film, and he mentioned that originally uh, everyone wasn't kind of that kind of yuppie-ish kind of vibe, that it was, you know, they were, like, originally it was very, like, rocker-heavy, you know, with wigs mm. and kind of stuff. And I, I wonder, like, what the film would have been like with that. It, 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 I don't think it would have worked. I mean, it might've like, felt too, like it might've felt too separate. Like, I don't, I, I don't know these people. Like I don't, yeah. I don't have a connection to that, yeah. to that world of, of whatever, you know, I, I think someone could connect to Eddie. I think someone could connect to Maddie. And I think if you have it be a little too out of the realm of what might feel like, you know, like the norm or the average people might've been like, I don't really get it. That's not like you talking about Peter, like you said, a nightmare on Elm street, or they had very few characters, you know, Nancy, she felt like your babysitter. She felt like the girl next door. I mean, mm -hmm. it's such a cliche phrase, but she, she just felt like a regular girl in your neighborhood or the, or the young girl you see at the mall or, 
You look mm-hmm. at Jamie Lee Curtis and, and you know, they looked like regular young high school yeah. girls. Whereas I think if you do something that's a little too extreme, you start to go, that's a character, not, you know, well, someone also, I can relate I, to. I, I think it definitely reflects the filmmakers. Like Tom McLaughlin, you know, he was in a rock band in the 70s. He's in a rock band now. You can end up seeing the character like Court and they used to ask Alice Cooper music. There's a slight heavy metal feel to, to some of that, whereas, you know, John Carl Beaker was a, a self-admitted film geek, loved makeup, a character like, you know, Eddie. I can see that in a Tom and John Carl Beaker movie. Like, the characters seem to reflect what the film, you know, you look at Danny Steinman, all those characters look like they could be in porn movies because they came from porn, you know what I mean? So um, I think you definitely see the filmmaker's influence on, on how the characters are portrayed. Sure, that makes sense. So what do we think of Tina then? Talked about characters that we could relate to. Uh, and this was, you know, a little bit different up to this point, like the final girl or your Tommy Jarvis's. We could kind of all, you know, see ourselves in. Um, and, you know, Tina seems a little bit different. She's a little bit off. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because like she's a character because most of us can't relate to telekinesis. I mean, I don't think anyone really has telekinesis. Um, speak for yourself. Oh, sorry, <laughs> you know. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's interesting that you empathize with her as much as you do because, you know, she's not like a Laurie Strode or a mm-hmm. Nancy, you know, she's not just a girl next door. I mean, she's kind of, ex- you know, super extraordinary, you know, extraordinary, I could say. I do think that I think, you know, taking off on that thought is I for me, I don't know that I identified with her plight or really cared for her as much as I was just like, do something cool, Tina. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's like, you know, you look at Ginny, any of the final girls like Alice was so like down to earth and real and and really probably reacted in the most normal way, considering what was going on around her. Ginny was like super tough and super strong and everyone wanted to be her. Yes. Yeah, and then you have Chris from part three, um, who, becomes like a bas- who becomes a basket case at the end. Like everyone kind of <laughs> had their thing, but Tina's thing was just really that she had this power. I think if you stripped away her, her kind of ability, I sort of feel like the character, to be honest, is, is a cipher. Like there's not a lot to latch right. onto because she didn't have anything special other than being literally special. Well, well I mean, that... I guess the whole thing with her father, I, I guess it is interesting you guys say that, that, you know, she was basically brought up in an abusive home, um, suffered a lot of trauma. She kind of seems like a victim in a sense, you know, she's been put upon and without the psychic part, she would kind of be uh, a murderer. Well, that's <laughs> what I mean. But, yeah, that's but you know what I mean? Like, like, like a Sydney from Scream, you know, here's someone who suffered all this trauma, but is a fighter. Tina does seem kind of like always on the edge of hysteria, kind of put upon and not, she, she, she would be really wimpy if it wasn't for the psychic powers. If that makes right. Sense. Yeah. I mean, well, she I, always has her hands in her pockets and she kind of is like, I mean, and the interesting thing is I'm sure these were character choices from Lar. She does have that kind of pulled in physicality like she yes. puts her hands in her pockets and she's diminutive and she makes herself even more diminutive and she yeah. shrinks back with her shoulders pushed forward and her chest pulled back and it's like you yeah. as a lead i don't know that other than her power i'm necessarily really with her well, yeah, because you watch like her first altercation with melissa she kind of just scurries away out of the party and runs yeah. away you know and it was not until the second time that she does the pearl thing you know? right 
Yeah. It's interesting, though, that when she is confronted, when she is challenged, that she does kind of yeah. step up at that point. Like, for all her mousiness, that when there is a fight to be had, like, she doesn't duck away from it. Yeah, that's a perfect, uh, mousiness is the perfect way. To yeah, that's a great word. But, I mean, I listen, I think we all like her. I just don't know that she has kind of that special pizzazz aside from her power, because... Could I see? Could I see her doing what Ginny did in Part Two? I really no. can't. No. Could I? But you know, I. But when you have telekinetic powers, you don't need to do those things. But again, strip yeah. her of that really specialness, and I just don't know that as a character she's the strongest. I mean, frankly, the strongest personality in that movie is Melissa. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there's something about the Melissa character that's incredibly memorable, and I think it's aside from the fact that she's a total witch most of the time. <laughs> she just has that, t- she walks into a room and you're going to notice her. The well, way the she about Melissa, moved, the way Melissa, she flipped yeah. her hair. I mean, she, she, you know what? Melissa knew how to work a room. Well, the thing about Melissa is like, <laughs> she's like, Melissa's like, this is who I am. I'm not apologizing. I'm having fun with my life. Either, you know, you're with me or you're not. And fuck you if you don't like me. Whereas, right. You know, Tina, the thing about Tina, though, maybe it's the way it's written is, again, because she resurrects her abusive father at the end. Maybe they've given her a better, a more of an empowering arc in some way, because in a way she, she hasn't killed Doctor Cruz. Basically. Trying, yeah, she, like, like, you know, like it, yeah. If she would have overcome Doctor Cruz and did something, Jason kind of takes care of him for her, you know. So and he kills her mom. She doesn't really help anybody, basically. No, it's <laughs> really her fault that a <laughs> yeah. lot of this is happening. I yeah. mean, at the end of the day, she survives, <laughs> you, and she sort of saves Nick. I mean, she does, sort of, but. Yeah. But there's this thing about, like, all of these events are swirling around Tina, and she's she's just a shrinking violet until yeah. she needs to survive herself. Yeah. She's well, really it's kind of like, like Tommy Jarvis and Jason Liz. I mean, ultimately, it's his fault that all that shit yeah, happened. It is, yeah. Like, if he would have yeah. just left Jason alone and dealt with his own problems, I mean, you know, a lot of people yeah. would be alive. Yeah, it's true. No, it's true. But I mean, again, I think as a character, Tina's really interesting, of course. She's mm-hmm. very memorable. I think the moments she is in tend to be memorable more than the character. Like, I remember the oh, things yeah. she did a lot yes. more than the things that she might have said. Whereas, mm-hmm. again, in other movies, I remember specifics about Alice and Ginny and, you know, Rennie Almost and that. things like that. They yeah. all kind of had their moments. But Tina's, Tina's an interesting character. I mean, it, it just, they they chose to do the physical, I think, instead of the emotional with her. And in this case, physical being things happening with yeah. her, you know, the things that she well, yeah. could do with her mind. Can you think about, you know, Ginny, Ginny in part two, even as a kid, I'm like, oh, she's smart. Like, I want to be like, like, you admire her. I don't think yeah. anyone wants to be Tina. I think, we, I think we'd all love to have Tina's power, but no one wants yes. to be Tina. That's exactly, well, think, that's such a great way to put it. Well, a new blood. I mean, the new blood. I, I think it's the first film in the series where you kind of don't want to be the protagonist, and yeah. I think that kind of goes off on the next few movies. I mean, I don't remember much being like, I don't remember anything unique about Rennie other than she owns yeah. Stephen King's pen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from from the new blood on, you get these protagonists that if you take away like the big kind of gimmick of it. I mean, they're yeah, really not that memorable. I mean, oh. no offense to Duke. You get Creighton Duke in part nine. Oh, Mike. Oh, <laughs> Creighton Duke was his own thing, yeah. But well, I think you're right. But I mean, like, but the thing is, even with Rennie, though, like there was something about Rennie where I felt for her. Because you did? Oh. Well, sort of. I mean, her <laughs> uncle was really mean to her, and 
She You're tried right. to like overcome something. Okay, fine, I did. Okay, well, yeah, well, whose who's no. uncle is it mean to them? <laughs> yeah, but also, but the thing, but the same thing happens to Renny. She gets pushed off the boat by her uncle, and then uh, the, uh, Charlene Martin, the wonderful bitchy girl, pushes her off the ledge. Then she gets drugged and is like, Ugh, like she's not really proactive. Like things happen to her a lot. No, you're right. Things happen to her. She doesn't, as a protagonist, kind of, you know, force the change. She's not the change we need to see in the world. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that ends, you know, with Melissa and the New Blood, it it starts that trend of, you know, the sequels that followed of having that kind of bitchy character being kind of another antagonist as well. Yep. but, But I don't think anyone really did it the way... Melissa did it. I also also think that, again, in terms of just characters, Melissa as a character had so much more to play off of by virtue of the fact that Tina was literally in a mental hospital. I mean, she's like, Nick, that chick's crazy. And I'm like, you're right, Right. she is. (laughs) I mean, whereas the other ones are like, Rennie's such a nerd or or whatever. Rennie wants to be a writer. Like, okay, whatever. But it's like, when you're going around telling people, like, oh my God, she was in a, like, hey, was this how you wear your jacket at the mental hospital? Like, she had so much to work with. Oh, the depth. This is amazing. I feel like we're not showing a lot of empathy. I think if someone's listening to this podcast, they think we're horrible people, Tommy. I really do. I actually have thought about that. I was like, when I said that Melissa probably smells really beautiful, like, I meant that it's the nicest way possible that she probably has really, really nice perfume. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not being very sensitive to people who are in the mental hospital. But it's not Or that smell. Yeah, we didn't make the movie we're commenting on the movie i mean i think what melissa did is terrible i think that eddie was a part of it it doesn't sound like it i think you're on melissa's side (laughs) (laughs) i think you're team melissa team melissa i'm gonna get a (laughs) t-shirt yeah Yeah. but let's be honest it's not team melissa team melissa i I still don't know why she says it like that is was she trying to like invoke Catwoman and be flirty? I still well, don't get it. She's definitely a prototype for like your Brenda and Beverly Hills 90210 yeah. in yeah. just a few years. Like she's just really catty and it's really wonderful to watch her. Um, Cause she totally. just basically what she, she has the ability to look at everybody in the room and size them up immediately. And she knows a, what she can get out of somebody, but also B, um, you know, what someone's weakness is at that point, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Well, and she, she definitely tries to use it. Too. Yeah, she she is, yeah, I mean, she is going to use everything she can to her advantage because, you know, let's delve into Melissa's very deep, complicated, <laughs> incredible backstory. <laughs> she probably watched her very rich corporate raider father, you know, do these things and get ahead in life. And, you know, she, she again, she knows how to work a room. She knows how to read a room. So but I understand what Tommy's saying. Like she's a very '80s character in that sense. She seems like the little spoiled princess who always gets what she wants, and Daddy's little girl with the pearls. Like I could definitely see that character type. Yes. Are you back? I'm back. I don't know what happened. See, it's the, you know what? It's probably the psychic universe saying that's no, what we were just Tina's saying. Tina's the lead. <laughs> Tina's the lead. Yes. I still think Melissa is my favorite character. I think this entire conversation has changed. Everything about my outlook. Yeah, I on agree. Life. You know, she reminds me of one of my favorite characters in any slasher movie is Wendy from Prom Night, the original Prom Night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. I love that character. Yeah, the bitchy characters are always more fun, generally. You know, they're just well, a little more, ju- more juice to them. Yeah, 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 yeah memorable. I, 
I think the showdowns at the end of the past Friday the 13th films, uh, the ones prior to this, were were really fun. But I, I feel like the New Blood has such a fantastical showdown at the end, you know, with Kane just getting put through the ringer. Like, it's so much fun to watch. I totally oh, yeah. agree. I think, again, that's what you were waiting for. And I, I look yeah. back on it now, and, you know, through rose-colored glasses and, and what you want to happen— I wish more would have happened, but when yeah. you look back at what they were capable of doing and practically doing, they did some fantastic stuff. I mean, yeah. the roof collapses and they, the weeds, you know, tie him up and he gets slammed in the face with a lamp and falls through stairs. I mean, she really, I yeah. don't think she did the smartest things with her powers, but she did what she could and yeah. she definitely beat him up. I mean, yeah. Well, she has a lot of abilities. So not can she like move things she can resurrect zombies at the bottom of the lake yeah Yeah. she's very strong i mean that's the other thing like i feel like that ending aside from being just not workable on any level (laughs) it it made her seem so much more powerful like why didn't she like why didn't she just tear jason apart with her mind Right. I mean, I yeah. kind of wonder if the point where she splits his mask open, if they, if she were to keep doing that, if his head would have like burst open like a ripe watermelon. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you think that she would? I mean, I guess she could potentially do it, but, um, but she, you know, I think if you do that, then there's no movie, and it's like everyone always says, "I would do this. I'd chop him up yeah. and I would put him in the blender and everything." But then there'd be no movie. <laughs> right. Well, also too, I mean, um, uh. Oh, uh you can't make her too powerful where she overpowers Jason. Like Jason still has to be formidable for her. So if mm-hmm. yeah. power, you know, he has to be a challenge for her. That's why I've been and I, he came back in the sequel. But. but I think it's also like, you know, I, again, I made the joke, like I'm going to get him by throwing five nails into his body. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think that she really, uh, you know, of course she knew he was quote unquote dead and brought back to life or whatever, I guess. But, you know, she didn't really know what she was up against. I mean, she probably thought yeah. of dropping this incredibly heavy log roof on this yeah. dude. It's it's this good. I'm good to go. I electrocuted him, and then I did this. He's gone. You know, and then, you know, she throws a tree at him and with a head. <laughs> and, yeah, it sort of actually de-escalated, actually. Like, yeah. she electrocuted him. She roofed him. And then she like closed, she closed, you know, pocket doors on him. Yeah. yeah. If the fight were to keep going, she would have been hitting him with the couch pillows. Yeah. Right. There'd be, there'd, be, there'd be feathers. Like, I'm going to get you. And then like a feather would hit his face and, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, the burn is great at the end. I mean, it's, and then the house exploding. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, again, I think practically in terms of effects, they did some very cool things for the time. Yeah. And I think it, it's a movie that, you know, sort of. <laughs> hides its budget in some ways and shows it in others. I think mm-hmm. the practical effects and the makeup and stuff were pretty, pretty good, yeah. but the movie might not look that yeah, expensive. The, the photography, or, it was made really or, quickly too. So. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks, it looks great, but I mean, you could tell some of the budget obviously went to the cocaine. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't have said that if we weren't told that yesterday. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, Peter, books. Peter has all the stories, which yeah. are mostly, mostly put in the book. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Some stuff I couldn't. So there you go. I think <laughs> maybe that, um, you guys could part three, five and seven. All the odd number ones are all about the cocaine. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Maybe you guys could tell us how did they decide upon this ending? Because I 
cannot make heads or tails of it with the dad. Like, did they just leave the dad well, in that, the lake? That was that was largely Sax and Beekler like combating each other, right? Yeah, because he was supposed to be all like a zombie. He was supposed to be like a zombie. So the idea was that he, the the body was still in the lake, and he she literally animated the body to pull Jason under. But now because he looks normal, is it all in her? Like you're like, is it in her mind that she's imagining it? Like she put Jason in the water and just visualized the father. Like it doesn't really make sense. But, and but it just also, I, like I feel like again, her telekinesis makes her passive in a way particularly for that moment because it's not it, yes it's her defeating jason but it's by proxy you know it's not mm-hmm. actually you know Ginny, you know or you know uh alice beheads mrs Voorhees. Ginny machetes jason Voorhees. you know chris axes him in the face and so on and so on until you get to tina who's like i'm gonna get someone else to do their dirty work and well, it just so but, happens but, to be but, my I mean, dad but, well, no, it's not like his dad popped up on his own and she animated him. That's the whole point. No, I know, but it's yeah. still like not like she just stood there with that look on her face, that constipated <laughs> look. Well, I, I, I guess the idea thematically was she's finally forgiven herself for killing her father and doing this. <laughs> wow. And, and Deep th- dive. That, that was the idea. Yeah. Well, that, that was that was why, she, you know, because the whole movie is about, you know, it starts the prologue of her killing her dad. She feels guilty. The doctor's exploiting her guilt her power and so she finally takes control of her life it just doesn't really come across very well are you now trying to convince the world peter Brackey, that friday the 13th part 7 the new blood <laughs> no, is a story of redemption no this is according <laughs> to daryl haney and you know this is that was sort of the idea it just didn't kind of come across very well, well no yeah. and that's what i'm saying it's just I, I i always i mean as a kid i don't think the ending bothered me in any way yeah. shape or form i probably jumped I was probably scared. I probably thought it was really neat and cool. I probably wondered mm-hmm. why does he not look like he was underwater for a yeah. long time. But I still always had a problem with the fact that Tina didn't directly defeat oh, Jason. Physically. Like, be- not even physically, but just between Tina and Jason. She did all those other things leading up to this moment, like directly to Jason. It was her making the weeds, yeah. her electrocuting him, her with the roof, her with the nails, her with the fire. And then all of a sudden, her dad, guy, comes up. her dad comes right. up through her, and he's the one that vanquishes yeah. Jason physically. Like, he pulls Jason away, and she passes out. Well, and that's always joined. been a trope of the final girl. And I know Jerry and I don't always subscribe to the theory of the final girl, but, you know, one of the criticisms of the trope is it's the final female character that kind of gets away for so long and fights off the big bad at the end until another male character yeah. comes in and finishes things off. Mm-hmm. And I that's mean, that, that, literally on display yeah. here. Yes. Well, but, but even... The pop, but the pop, well, I would sort of not agree with that just because Tina is animating her father. He's not really alive. He didn't come and save her. She did all of that herself. It's just a but was it just the accumulation and, uh, like, her learning the ability to be able to do that? Because, I mean, my, like I, I said, my know. son's... My son's 10 years old, like, and he came in after I showed it to him the first time. He came in, yeah. he's like, Dad, I love that movie. It's my favorite one. Like, really? He's like, but I got to ask, like, why didn't the dad just come out earlier and help? And I was like, well, I think Tina's doing that. Well, why didn't she just do that earlier? I mean, even like a 10-year-old's looking at that, right. like, you know, being like, But I think looking on? at it deeper in, in the way Peter did was it took mm-hmm. her that amount of time and probably being in the proximity of where it happened and the moment yeah. – 
that it started to well up. It's like what, and it could have been, I mean, I'll, I'll contradict myself and at least allow myself to believe she might've been like, there's nothing more I can do. You know, daddy save me, you know, like maybe she regressed into the little girl and was like, I hurt you. Now you can help me. I I mean, I don't know. Again, you know, she finds her mother's dad. That probably has something to do with it. The other thing I mean, is that according to the plot, Dr. Cruz knew about Jason and brought her there on purpose. I guess he expected her to resurrect. Yeah, because remember she finds the clippings in the in the drawer of the doctor. And the, and the your favorite moment, the spike. Yes, the spike which makes which the doctor doesn't know about because she doesn't tell him until after the spike's in the wall. So how could the spike be outside when she didn't tell Dr. Cruz yet the spike was there? So how could But yet he seem they seemingly made it like he planted it's all how, how it doesn't that? work. It doesn't work the way they timed it most yeah. of anything. Like they could have timed it better. Yeah. Where maybe he just been... has a huge stockpile of like camping equipment. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's that scene though, where like she goes into the drawer and she finds a book with Jason clipping. So Dr. Cruz knew about Jason. So, but how would he know that she was going to resurrect? Like was his goal to resurrect? She? I, I, I was always a little confused by that. I kind of took it that he would just use that as another button to push. If he wanted to kind of like get her more amped up, I I kind of figured he could kind of prey on her. And I I thought that too. I think it was just, let me bring her back here because this is the start of all of her problems. So it's going to bring her to, like he said, her emotional peak. Yeah. And I think it's like, you bring someone back to the scene of the crime. It's hard not to like start, you know, start sweating. Yeah. True. True. Um, You know, but there's nothing about him that was a good guy. What I've always loved is how uh, ballsy the journalists were around Crystal Lake. I mean, whoever took those pictures that Rob found, Rob had in part four. I mean, you know, where did that photo come from? Like, these are guys that are, like, up there with people that go into, like, combat and take Mm -hmm. photos and stuff. Like, Crystal Lake has some really ballsy journalists. They really do. I well, I think it's for that one photograph. I'm glad you did. It also reminds all of those kinds of things in movies always take me back to what I always find like maybe the most egregious one, which is the Halloween movies where they have that picture of this basically the publicity still of Jamie Lee sitting on the corner with the pumpkin. Like, was there paparazzi <laughs> taking pictures of high school girls back then? Because that thing gorgeous perfectly. Yeah. You just had your. Just had yeah, your was a guy in a van offering yeah. candy that sold that photo after the fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, when it comes to the actual release of Moonblood, I mean, yeah, it, the, the series started losing money. But, I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, it, it cost almost, what, $3 million and it made yeah. over 19 yeah, I mean, it, it made money, but, I mean, do you think that they, I mean, what did they expect? Did they expect Nightmare on Elm Street levels at that time? Uh, I mean, they were hoping, I mean, definitely Frank Mancuso, especially on eight said, you know, you need to start competing with nightmare. They, they tried to start spending more money. I think, yeah, I think, all, I think a lot of the executives didn't really understand. I mean, Frank Mancuso senior definitely said, he's like, you know, I was a 56 year old man. Like this was for teenagers. They just sort of throwing darts. Like, okay, we'll do imposter Jason. Now we'll tell us you know, anything to keep it alive hoping this might reignite it. Like, they hope with part six, they really put a lot of money into the uh, Super Music video. They did more promotion. They had a bigger premiere. Kind of hoping they could make it a fun summer movie. And I think they were just hoping, but um, it was pretty clear that with the box office, it just kept declining, you know? Right. Um, I, I mean, like I know, to know how it did. I'd like oh, to sorry. know how the home 
box office for it did. Because by this time, VCRs are becoming more and more popular. And I know people like me are getting introduced to these movies more by renting them at my mom yes. and pop video store. Um, so people are saying, I'm not going to wait for it to come out on video and maybe not catch it in the theater. Yep. Yeah, I mean, video well, they were part of this band. Yeah, and they were also unique in the sense that, I mean, I remember growing up, you know, VHS tapes weren't widely available to purchase. I mean, if you wanted to, you had to go to a video store and, you know, look at the catalog and yes. spend 79, 80 bucks. Whereas I yeah. remember every Halloween, Paramount would put out the Friday the 13th films for, you know, 19, 20 bucks at, yeah. you know, Long's Drugs or something. So, I mean, I, I do feel like the, the kind of VCR, the VHS era, I mean, really helped the franchise, especially. Oh, these. yeah, definitely. So can you guys go into a little bit, like, what was it that the MPA had such a um, hard-on for about this movie? Where this is, I think, when we talk about these films getting kind of butchered by the MPAA, this is the one that people probably cite more than any other one. So what yeah. exactly was cut, and well, remember, why was it that way? I remember in the theater, like, you were waiting that whole movie for Dr. Cruz to get killed. Because yeah. she's such an asshole. And you finally get to that scene, and it's so butchered. It's like, I, the audience just deflated. Because you're expecting some great big kill. And it's like, oh. But, I, I mean, the way the NPA works, my understanding is every, they have a new, like, there's not the same panel of people. So they draft in normal parents. So each movie gets a different set of reviewers. So you just might get unlucky and get a set of, like, you know, right-wing people are just going to be like, no, no, no. So they might be leaning on one movie and less leaning on another. So um, by that point, there was so much of the violence in movies and people were afraid of Satan. You know, your kids are going to become Satanists by listening to Judas Priest and all this kind of stuff. I remember that time is really, people were just, like now this movie would be PG-13, if that. It would be PG-13. Right. So it was just the time. I just remember, I know you remember Tommy, but I remember growing up and everyone was afraid of violence in movies. So, Oh yeah, no, it was like a huge thing. But I think the other thing with this particular movie is, you know, John Beekler as an effects person as well. I mean, I don't think he wanted to shy away. I think the things he filmed were, I mean, you know, you're seeing people get punched through. Yeah. You know, the things that he was showing were just so, I think, visceral in a way that maybe some of the other movies weren't. Um, yeah. Even with the Tom Savini movies, I think it's like, you know, a lot of that almost seemed artistic at times. But the stuff in The New Blood was just it was just gore violence. Yeah. And I think that they were like, you know what? We're not going to let you go to an 11. You need to pull this back. Right. Yeah. I know the kill that gets talked about the most is the sleeping bag scene where that went <laughs> yeah. from like three hits against a tree down to one hit against yeah. a tree. And... You know, what's interesting is even with those cuts to that scene, I still it's think still it's works. one of the most iconic yep. deaths. It is. You only friend. need the one. I think that showed his strength and his power more than three. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, that's mm -hmm. such a, I mean, it's such a fun kill that like, it's kind of like certain kills are just more memorable. Like no matter how gory it was, like what's the kill where the girl gets the party favor in her head or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that to me is just kind of a lame kill no matter what. Even if it was gory, it's like yeah. a, party, a party hat in your head. I don't know. Um, whereas, like, the sleeping bag is just, like, a great, like, concept. Like, you can't yep. go wrong with that. The, the death scenes are fun in The New Blood, whereas I think in the past, a lot of death scenes just really hit you in the jugular. I yeah. mean, uh, Rob's death in the final chapter, I, I think, oh, is yeah. one of the most effective death scenes in any horror film. I mean, he's yeah. just screaming that this guy's killing him. You know, it's it's heartbreaking to watch. Or, uh, you know, the wheelchair death in, in part two. I mean, these are, like, really shocking, you know, go for the jugular kills. Whereas the new blood, like you said, 
fun. It's a fun ride to watch. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes the film work. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know that, you know, bringing up, you know, those kills in the earlier films, you know, I think that there was a little more characterization in, you know, say part one or part mm-hmm. two or part four or whatever. I think at the time the new blood came out, particularly it was how can we kill these kids in yeah, the most yeah. cool, fun way right. possible. Whereas before, you know what? You cared about the guy in the wheelchair and seeing him go down backwards was just, it was heartbreaking. It was like, this is awful. This is terrible. Yeah. But now it's like, you know, yeah, jabber in the eye with the party favor and the audience applauds. Or yeah, Melissa. Yeah. I mean, I, I still cheer every time I see Melissa, you know, oh, get her yeah. comeuppance. It, it's great. <laughs> it's very memorable. I mean, you definitely want him. He literally, it's like, you know what? It's, it's the subconscious ultimate, you know, shut up. You know, you get an axe in the <laughs> face. Um, but I think that was the thing. I think, I think as the movies went on and the characterization got dimmer and dimmer and the effects got brighter and brighter, the MPAA was like, you're just putting red on the screen for no reason at all. And we're not going to allow it because we have people to answer to. And it's, you know, Mm -hmm. well, how do you, how do you guys feel about, uh, a lot of, uh, the opinions of a lot of people where the new blood's kind of where the series starts to go off the rails? I, could, I think you could say that about a lot of the other ones, too. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's just part seven. No. I think it's the next one, to be quite honest with me. It's part eight is where it really starts to falter. Um, this seems like still like a fun, it's a fun, silly horror movie yeah. with good kills and really awesome makeup and a really great Jason performance and some fun characters overall. So I'm not, I can, I guess maybe they people might say that because of telekinesis, but eh, you know what? I don't think it's till the next movie that I'm really kind of losing interest. Part eight is a chore to get through. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear more from people that part five went off the rails. Well, that doesn't even feel like, I mean, to me, it never even felt like a Friday the 13th movie. I mean, mm-hmm. even when I watched it, I was like, it just felt like dirty and it yeah, just there was nothing it's, about it. It wasn't even really like a woods movie. It was it was the it was the halfway house movie. I, there was just something about that movie <laughs> that didn't feel coming off of part four, which really felt like a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Yeah, I mean, again, it's only the fourth one, so you mm-hmm. you know don't have that many. But but I I think part five is just off the rails in in a bunch of ways. And you know, part six is also you know if you if you go you know grimy and dirty with part 5 you go completely the other direction and go humor in part 6 yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part 7 you have this telekinetic girl which is now it's supernatural i mean i guess it's supernatural by virtue cuz he's a zombie at that point but right. yeah. but yeah part 8 i mean doesn't even make sense i no. mean it well, just do you, doesn't even make sense do you think well, that the kind of the approach part eight. oh sorry uh-huh. No, no, I was just going to say, uh, do you think the approach with the telekinesis kind of led everyone to be like, you know what, let's one-up it and see what we can do now. Let's put Jason in New York. Let's make Jason be pretty much, you know, a body-switching kind of approach. Like, well, from 7 on, it gets it gets kind of, it, it, like, the odd aspects of it grow and grow. Well, the, th- the thing in Part 8 is, like, that was the first movie, you could argue, that felt like a cheat. At least in Part 7, you get the telekinetic final. You, know, you mm-hmm. get the stuff you came for. Part eight, you you got you didn't get Manhattan. You felt yeah, Canada. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you get that. Movie, yeah. The audience are like, when is they get to fucking New York already? Like, everyone in the theater is like, what is like? You know, you felt like 
swindled a bit. So right. Yeah. Well, because the whole ad campaign swirled around yes. Times Square, New York City. Ooh, yeah. And and it's like I mean that awesome teaser, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then you're just on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> which isn't even that interesting. I mean, it's just not even an interesting setting and you know, you have well, Kelly who could have been cool discoing to death and yeah. it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The only good part, I mean, listen, I will watch Friday the 13th part 8 for one reason, that opening song. I like oh, yeah. the song. I, I don't get it. <laughs> All right, I want to be mindful. If you can sing the whole thing right now, we could end with that. I'm a horrible singer. You don't want to hear that. You know? So I, I want to be mindful of time. I know, Tommy, you need to go at 7.30, so let's wrap up. Okay. Uh, so if you guys want to talk Thanks a little... Thanks a lot, Tommy, for being a killjoy. No, wow. <laughs> Everybody... Using, I'm actually using my mind powers on you right now. Oh, okay. So, Peter, we actually had a question from one of our, our listeners. They were wondering if you ever planned on updating Crystal Lake Memories to include the remake. I did, actually. Um, I'll tell you the honest problem is Warner. So what happened is New Line got bought by Warner Brothers. New Line was fantastic. They let us use, like if you notice, the cover of the book has the actual Friday logo on it. We got mm -hmm. use of all the stills for a really you know affordable price. Warner took it over. They basically called me and they were like, who did this deal? We can't believe it. We would never let you do this. Because the way Warner works is if you want to release a book with like the official or whatever, it has to become a Warner licensed product. They'd want to go in and re-edit the book, take all the good stuff out. So okay. there's really no way to, the contract I have now, I can keep the book in publication. But the minute we do a new edition, I have to re-license everything and Warner basically won't let us do it. Okay. So there's really no way for me to add the remake into the book and keep the book the same quality. So so what do you have, what are you working on now? Like what are some upcoming projects you have? Uh, I have a new book I'm working on. Uh, I don't have a date yet because it's taking me a while. Because I'm old now and it takes me a long time to write. Tommy makes fun of me all the time. <laughs> but uh, basically, if you're if you're a fan of '90s slasher movies, you'll you'll look forward to this book. Excellent. Um, I know that'll make our friends over at the Keep Screaming podcast really happy because they are huge fans of. Yeah, the only slasher. reason I haven't really officially announced is just because it's taking me a while and I don't want to like you know give it. Like, too far ahead. Yeah. When you say a while, like, are you on page two? Like, are well, you? Well, no. Uh, like, <laughs> Crystal Lake Memories took me three years. Um, mm -hmm. So this new book will be, you know, same kind of thing. Hundreds of interviews, you know. Okay. So it just takes a while to do it. Okay. But I'm about a, a, a third of way through it, maybe. Excellent. So maybe in a year or two we'll see that. Yeah, but, I'll probably we'll announce it after that. Tommy, what about yourself, my friend? What do you have coming up? Like, what have you been working on? Uh, I am working on and nearly done with the sequel to my first novel, Jinxed. Um, the sequel follows the events of the first book. It's the second in a trilogy, and it is called Cursed. So I'm about to finish the first draft on that. And I just wrote a teen thriller that is just wrapping production, I believe. I, I really don't know any other information. It's called Instafame. Um, it's kind of a social media thriller. So that... Mm -hmm. um, wrapped, and I am currently on a screenwriting assignment, which I can't really talk too much about, but I can say that it is going to be a movie with a lot of bite. That's all okay. I'll say. Okay. <laughs> and, and really quickly, I mean, you've done some excellent work with uh, uh, bonus features on, like, a lot of uh, Screen Factory releases lately, too. Oh, yeah, and you know, funny enough, Peter and I worked together recently on one of uh, Screen Factory's 
um, most recent titles that released The Entity, which yeah, was a lot yeah. of fun. Excellent, excellent stuff. Yeah, so that was a, those, those are always fun to do. I mean, they're mm -hmm. just kind of fun to do when you get to work on the titles that are, you know, really cool or really fun or have the people you want to kind of get to know and really dig into their brains. So that's always kind of a neat thing to do is yeah. dive into the making of those movies. And it, it's like it's like the mini docs. It's like, you know, I did the big gigantic um you know, all encompassing documentaries. These are kind of the little slices of pie. Um, mm -hmm. So they're always fun to do. Yeah, I, I, I think you'll agree, Tommy. Like it's, it's fun to do that stuff because like working on a book takes so long. It's nice to be able to do something where you can do it in a month or two and it's done. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and you kind of can see the results of your work a lot mm -hmm. faster and quicker. You know, yeah. it, it kind of, you, you go in, you do it, and it gets released. Whereas a book, mm -hmm. you know, you're just sitting in front of the blank page over and over and mm -hmm. over again. Oh, God. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, really thrilled. We'll hope to have you guys on again in the future. Jerry, do you want to let everyone know what we're doing next week? We are doing Jason Takes Manhattan with oh. uh, with Brad McCarg, uh, writer, yes. uh, Telluride Horror Film Festival, and uh, many mm -hmm. other things. So we generally have a rule that we try to be very positive. Um, you know, we're critical but positive about the movies we talk about. I think next week is going to put that to the test. <laughs> and we'll Come leave on, guys, it at that, that opening song. The opening song. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. The only redeeming thing. No, Jason X is the, Jason X is the best remake of Alien. I think that we're going to get. Oh yeah, we're working on it. We're working to. on that. Thank you guys. Everyone have a fantastic night. All right. Uh, thanks so too, much. Man. Thanks so much. Nice,